Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right. Today on One Broken Mom, I have with me Joyce McFadden. She is a therapist and the author of this amazing book called Modern Mothering, what daughters say they need to know from their mothers regarding sexual development and its impact on their self-worth. Joyce has a master's in social work from Columbia University and five years of postgraduate training in psychoanalysis. And she's a faculty member, training analyst, and clinical supervisor at the Training and Research Institute for Self-Psychology. She's a board member of the National Council on Women's Health, a member of the Women's Mental Health Consortium, and a sexuality consultant for an independent girls' school. She's a featured writer for Huffington Post, and her research has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, O, the Oprah Magazine, the Detroit Free Press. New York Magazine's The Cut, MsMagazine.com, CNN.com, Medium.com, Feminist.com, and the Women's Media Center. So needless to say, I'm pretty stoked to have Joyce on the show. And so welcome, Joyce. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. So in a nutshell, um, I brought you on the show because I'm the mother of a 14-year-old daughter, and I am at this place of being completely frozen on how to approach the topic of sexuality, not just the sex talk and the mechanics of sex. That's, a, that's an easy thing. But how do I um, live now and nurture this developing woman in front of me and not have all of the baggage that I've been carrying with me on my whole life um, and have it kind of soil and poison her mindset in here? Because mm-hmm. as you point out in your book, you know, you talk about that mothers are only trying to protect their daughters from our own fears. But yet, you know, when I list out my fears here, they're like diametrically opposed to each other. You know, I, I, I fear that I don't want my daughter to be the victim of a sexual assault. And yet, on the other hand, I also don't want my daughter to have a poor body image. So I, I want her to feel like she can show herself and be herself. Um, I don't want my daughter to feel like her value is embedded and embodied on her physical appearance and being this sexual object for everybody that's out there. But yet, on the other hand, I don't want her to be left with feeling ashamed or shameful about sex and intimate relationships Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so I know that I'm not the only person because when I mentioned that I was talking to you um, and doing this interview, everybody was writing down your name in the book and, you know, when we were going to air the episode here. And so you're here to kind of help, you know, navigate through this. Um, And so I appreciate that so much. This has been one of those episodes where I felt like preparing for it was one of the hardest things I ever did because I just was like 
duh. <laughs> like, I, mean, I finally, finally found a topic that I'm stuck on here. So, um, so introduce your book, Modern Mother Me, which used to be called Your Daughter's Bedroom and is based on an online study that you did in 2006. And I, I lay the groundwork for us on where you came up with all of this just juicy information and, and, and um, help and support that we're going to learn about today. Okay. First of all, I want to say to all the mothers out there, like you represent the norm. You have a huge community <laughs> of millions and millions of moms who are struggling with those very dualities that you mentioned. So don't feel alone with it and don't feel embarrassed by it. It's like we're all in the struggle together. Um, and one of the reasons that I wrote the book is, is so that our daughters maybe will have less of a struggle. Um, the way that the book came to be, I didn't set out to write a book about sexuality. I, I'm a psychotherapist and psychoanalyst and um, one year in my practice, I had a bunch of women in my practice who would often talk about almost exactly the same thing. They would tell a story that to a therapist here was totally normal and understandable and relatable, but they would feel shame about it. And they would say something like, am I a bitch for feeling this way? Or am I a horrible person for having done this? Or I must be the only person who feels this way. And I would be able to say to them in session, you know, you're like the third woman this week to talk about something very similar. And the second I said that, whatever shame they were feeling just instantly washed away. And I thought to myself, like, I want to bring that feeling to more women than I can reach just in my practice. And so um, what I wanted to do was allow or find, try and find a way to create a space where women could talk about the realities of their lives, not what you say when you have your game face on and you're out on the street and you pass your friend and your friend says, how are you? And you say, I'm great. But, you know, maybe, maybe you just had a miscarriage and you didn't tell her, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, the reason women don't share stories that they feel ashamed of is because they worry about alienating people or letting people down or losing relationships or somehow contaminating the relationship in a bad way. So I thought if I had a book where women could look up a topic and read about it with, and she, she wouldn't have to risk anything. She could read about it in the privacy or of her own home and wouldn't have to worry about any interpersonal fallout and she could learn and grow and have a sense of community and therefore have all of this shame lifted. So I wanted to create the emotional psychological companion to the classic Bible, our bodies, ourselves. And so I designed 63 open-ended questionnaires on every single theme of being female that I could think of. There were questions on mental health, like anxiety and depression. There were questionnaires on um, lesbians, bisexuals, careers, um, female cancers or female health issues. Um, there were questions on relationships, with, like relationship with your son, with your daughter, with your mother, with your father, childbirth, everything I could think of. And then I compiled them. And um, I wanted women to, in the privacy of their own home, again, be able to like turn to the rape chapter and read 20 different intimate accounts of what had happened, how women got through it, what they had to, to give us as advice or the childbirth chapter, you could read women's honest stories about childbirth. And when I, when everything was done, I had uh, about 1,300 questionnaires completed by uh, 450 women. Some of my daughter's friends, uh, my daughter was like eight, eight, nine, and 10 or so when this was happening. Um, so some of my daughter's friends completed questionnaires, but by and large, the, the questionnaires were completed by women from 18 to 105. And when I went to shop the book around, the book proposal around, um, they said no one was buying first edition reference books anymore. And if I wanted to sell it, I had to scale it down. I couldn't have a reference book with 63 topics. <laughs> so 
I decided I would let the women scale it down. And so the book is an analysis of the three most popular questionnaire topics. And they were in this order, um, menstruation, relationship with your mother, and masturbation. And so I, the book is an analysis of what those three topics have in common. And what they have in common is that women were starving for this information from each other and anonymously because they hadn't got it in their homes when they were growing up. And they really wanted to learn more about other women's experiences of just growing up as a female and living a life as a female. And what I found was that they, current girls, current college age women, and women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s usually felt somewhat abandoned by their mothers when it came to all things sexual. And, and if they had unhealthy with their relationship, unhealthy relationships with their mothers in other ways, like the, maybe the mother was cruel or abusive, that made more sense to them. But the women who otherwise had very healthy, open communication with their mothers on all the other topics of living, if the sexuality was left out, it really made them feel at sea with themselves and at sea with their mothers. And what ended up happening was that there would be, um, the daughters would be disappointed in their mothers and really not know how to handle that. And the daughters would feel isolated in their experiences. Some of them really extreme. For example, um, women in the study reported that they were um, raped or had uh, miscarriages or abortions or something, some trauma that they had to deal with in their 30s, and they didn't tell their mothers about it. And the reason they didn't tell their mothers about it was because they reasoned quite understandably so. If my mom wasn't there for me, like teaching me about menstruation, or if my mom dodged every sexual question I ever asked her about something normal, that there's no, if my mom couldn't be there for me in that way, there's no way she can be there around this sexual crisis that I'm in. And I think if mothers knew that, it would completely shift the paradigm and it would completely shift the way that they see their role in being there for their daughters. And that's just the scary thing. There are also lots of luscious things where the girls really um, wanted to be close to their mothers because um, far more than the information that they wanted on sexuality, it was the closeness and the sense of belonging to this community of women that started with their mothers that they were longing for. So that was the, how the study started and how the book was born. Awesome. Cool. Social, social norms, social cultures. I know that my, you know, one of my biggest, biggest fears again, is that I can put myself out there and I can be an adult woman. I feel like I can take, you know, for lack of a better term, I can take the arrows that get flung at you if you are out there and present. And even if you do, mm -hmm. you know, push yourself out there sexually provocative or just even being on your own. But I can't, or, or I fear that I can't help my daughter, you know, be prepared for that because I don't want the arrows to be thrown at her by her peers or even by adults because adults get, you know, and again, adults can be judgmental about these kinds of things. Okay. In terms of, yeah. And so, you know, how do you, how do you build that good ground of support behind our daughters? You know, what are some good ways for them to feel like they get to be themselves? Cause I actually, to be honest with you, I had a question, what's, you know, what's a good age for age appropriate clothing. And like, I, as I'm hearing you and reading the book, there is no age for that. There is no, that what's defining that age is a cultural norm that is based on some puritanical ideals or like you said, there's a right answer or wrong answer, but there is no right or wrong answer. It, it's a messy situation. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, being supportive, knowing that there is this, 
um, this backlash, the slut shaming that can come back at our, at our daughters. I think that overall is my biggest fear in this area and why I freeze, you know, when I, with, when engaging with my daughter on this, on this discussion, I don't know if you have a snappy answer for that, or at least some commentary on, you know, on what we should be mindful of as we're all dealing with that fear. If I had a, an answer that could be neatly tied up in a bow, I would be a very famous woman. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so again, I would defer to, we just have to accept that it's messy because there's so many different elements involved. One of them is that they, your daughter, right? Her age mm-hmm. group, sh- she will grow up with her peer group and her peer group is facing all of the same things. So what her peer group is making difficult for her is in some ways similar, but because of social media, very different than when we're girls. Um, so I think one of the things to do to help them with the developmental piece is to help them see that it's similar to other things. So what you want for them is to sort of gradually incrementally become more comfortable with their sexuality. And just because you put on a midriff or just because you pierce your belly button, it doesn't mean it, there's no context for it, right? You're still a 14 year old girl with a midriff. You're not a third. It's not going to make you a 30. 30 year old woman with all of the experiences you had from 14 to 30. So just, you know, encouraging our girls to sort of take it slowly so that they're, they're gradually building in their, their own ability to use their instincts, their own ability to feel grounded in who they are, letting them sort of take small steps in trying things out um, in terms of like what they wear or, you know, the responses to what they get because not only do you have to deal with how you choose to wear what you wear, you have to, as you said, you have to deal with the, how people respond to what you're wearing. And that has to be processed by each girl too. So I think it's just really tricky because the culture is saying girls have more value if they're sexualized. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was listening to an interesting, uh, um, many years ago, the American Psychological Association found the sexualization of girls to be at risk of a men- that put girls at the, at a risk of a mental health crisis because at that time what was happening was they were taking all these women in marketing for example they were taking all these women's clothing stores and just making all the sizes smaller and selling them to like at the limited 2 or Abercrombie little Abercrombie um so they were the, the clothing that was provided for the girls was more provocative. And if all the girls in your school are wearing similar things, you want to have a sense of belonging. So that's a developmental issue too. But I think the mother's role is to sort of say, you're going to be 30 one day, right? You're not going to, it's not that you can't do these things, but I really want you to wade into it. And then I think the other thing is um, maybe pick your battles. Like if there's a clothing line that you feel is a red line, to try and get your daughter to uphold it. Mm-hmm. But um, she also, she still has to fit in with her peers. So I don't think you can like draw five red lines because then your daughter's just going to want to rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, the other funny thing is that sexual, sexualized girls get slut shamed, but if you're not sexy enough, you get shamed for being prudish. And it's really sad. And, and I think the same is true for women. There really is no safe space for girls or women to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Right there, there we get scapegoated one way or another, and that's why it's so important to feel personally grounded in who you are, and why you have or helping our girls have a well-rounded sense of identity. That gets tricky with social media. If you're posting like sexy selfies, um, one of the things I think we want to ask our girls. I think the general thing that we have to do is to help uh, reinforce their critical thinking skills. 
So it's not just a sexy selfie so they feel good, right? Or so they get, you know, 30 likes. Right. It's a sexy selfie and they have to say, you want your daughter to be able to ask herself, why is this what I'm choosing? And what am I hoping to get? Um, and, and again, that is the part of sexuality that's not about a sexual behavior. These girls are not having sex, right? They're just putting their sexualized image out on Instagram or something. But be, be, being able to talk about it and being able to get to her to think about it and maybe in dialogue with you or even in the privacy of her own mind, just thinking about it, that, that's a part of the sexual dynamic that we don't think about. And that is really necessary for girls to be able to learn how to trust their own instincts and follow their own set of values. So, um, you know, if she's going for clicks, why does she want those clicks? Wait, what will the click say? Is she, is she excited because she seems thin? Is she excited because she seems pretty? Is she excited because she seems sexy? And then if that's the case, is that what all, is she, is she being reductive in what she puts out into the world, right? Is she, what about the more well-rounded qualities of her? Is she, is she excluding those or is she, is she downgrading the value of, her intellect or her humor or her musical ability or, you know, the kind of her kindness as a friend, because those are all parts of her too, that don't really get revealed so easily in Instagram. So mm-hmm. I think that's a way to deal with it, to help the girls start to navigate what it's like to live in a world that's hard for women. I mean, these things are hard for women. Women open up, you know, they'll go to a film or they open up a copy of Vogue or they watch the Oscars and they feel fat and ugly and not talented. So if it's hard for a woman who has a little bit more grounding to hold her own sense of herself against the images that culture presents us with, of course it's hard for our girls. And they're not going to get overnight. And, and they might be resistant to it because they're part of um, the developmental feature of adolescence is that you need to belong with your peer group so that you can leave your family eventually, right? So that you can start to have a sense of autonomy. But again, the, the, the maternal task is to try to help them not to rush that autonomy. You can't just dive into it and have it. You have to like learn how to build it up. Mm-hmm. So I think those are some of the ways. Those are good. I mean, and those are, those are easy ones to, you know, to hold and work through. Um, especially, like I said, if you are, um, like you, you've pointed out, the, the mother role here is that keeping that big division from forming between a mother and a daughter in here, mm-hmm. um, which like I said, I, I, you know, the way you put it in the book that, that it can, it grows and that it, it grows around just this one topic that nobody talks about uh, that. And it's kind of startling to sit there and think about that. You, you can lose trust with your own daughter by just being really evasive on yes. this particular topic you know? Um, and that's that, like I said, that's a startling concept. And yet sitting here and being reflective and, you know, talking with you about that, it's like, absolutely. I can totally see how that's, you know, how that's actually the case there. Um, because Mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. (laughs) The other thing I was going to say is one of the things we can also do is to teach our girls and our boys not to slut shame, right? Mm -hmm. Just because someone's wearing an outfit says, tells you really nothing about who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, the, and a, a, another part of the critical thinking is to, to teach our girls because you had asked, like, how can I, how can I not slut shame her? You want to reinforce her right to be a sexual being, um, but still have an eye out for sexualization. So teaching them the difference between sexualization or sexual objectification and authentic sexuality, the way that girls and women live with it, right? Mm-hmm. Those are two very separate things because sexual objectification is totally celebrated in our society. 
letting women and girls be sexual just naturally is still seen as taboo. And one of the prime images of this, and this isn't even with um, regard to adolescence, you can, our, our culture is wallpapered in images of breasts. Mm-hmm. Breasts sell everything, right? Um, and, and we see them everywhere. But if a woman breastfeeds in public, it, that's another thing entirely, right? right? So you can tell that your daughter a story like that. That could be a story about a 30-year-old woman. That's not shaming a teenage girl, but she, you can help her see that what's most important is that you feel the right to use your body as you see fit and that you have control over your body. And um, the, the way that you see or use your breasts is your business. And it's not... It's not so much about how someone else is going to look at your breasts and make assumptions about your breasts and whether they're sexy enough, that they're really two separate things. And I think if we support their right to be sexual, you want her to be comfortable with her breasts. You want her to enjoy her breasts in her sex life. You want her to feel comfortable in the clothing that she chooses to wear. But those should, those should come from her feelings outward. They shouldn't come from an objectifying gaze inward. In yeah. other words, like help her, uh, help her determine her own levels of comfort and how she wants to feel in her own body versus what she might be doing to please someone else. Because sexuality isn't really about, you know, pleasing. Well, obviously, if you're engaged in sexual behavior, it's about pleasing your partner if you want to. But it's not about, you know, pleasing boys on the street or men on the street. The other thing is that when girls dress sexually earlier, they're just usually doing it because they want to feel mature and they want to feel sort of enlivened by it all. And maybe they might want one of their peers' attention, but they need to really expand their sight, their sight field because it's not just teenage boys who would be watching them. It's going to be adult men, which is a very different thing. And I think our girls don't really tend to think of it that way, right? Yeah. They can find themselves sort of out of their league and in trouble. Yeah. And like I said, uh, that's one of my my main fears is this balance between not wanting to instill fear into my Mm -hmm. daughter about everything about her, like, you know, not to be afraid of walking down the street, you know, as she grows up, because I do, you know, we do know that teaching her that fear moment now is something that carries through for life. So Mm -hmm. if it is be, you know, be really scared of men looking at you weird, well, then we start this this whole thing starts to spiral, right? Of like either they either become in some ways um, too submissive, right? Too kind of locked mm-hmm. in and, and afraid like your story with Anna, the, and I believe that was her name at the beginning of your book um, and her like having mm-hmm. the sense of shame around it to, um, uh, to not being mindful at all. And, and being, uh, and, and again, I, I'm sitting here just like frozen because I, I'm catching myself talking about like, it should never be her fault if she gets assaulted by some jerk out there. Right. You know, but yet they are out there and that's that balance of being okay with yourself and being out there. But at the same time, it's almost like the self-defense class that you need to take to protect yourself against somebody who's going to violate those boundaries. You know, I think one, one inroad to that topic is that, Again, it's not just talking about the act of having sex. It's all of these other things that are contingent with sexuality. So one of the ways to not make it so scary, because I think when we talk to our girls about sex, if we talk to them about sex, it's don't have sex, don't get pregnant. There's never anything about desire or what she wants or the reciprocity of sexual behavior, right? Where girls are worried about giving blowjobs, but you don't really hear a lot of stories about girls getting oral sex in return. Right. Or women, or women, (laughs) right? Right. 
but one of the uh, ways to think about it is if you're talking about these things and if you're helping your daughter stay in her body and you don't want to only talk about the scary stuff to make sure that you balance it with letting her stay in her body long enough for her to feel her own desire. How does she experience her own desire? What does she feel ready to do physically? What, what is her, her body telling her she wants to do physically? And what that, whether that's holding someone's hand or making eye contact with them or full on intercourse, like wherever on the spectrum you might be, it's most important that you're helping her support her ability to, again, um, listen to, trust, and follow her instincts. That's saying, I want you to have desire. I want you to be sexually fulfilled. I want you to feel um, alive and engaged in your life in that way. And those very instincts that she might use to like listen to her own desire rather than just feel like she's being acted upon by someone else's desire is if you're in a sexual, if you're in a situation where you're walking down the street and your daughter feels unsafe, she's going to need the exact same instincts. You want her to be in her body and you want her to listen to, trust, and follow her instincts in that setting. So her instincts will help her hopefully have pleasurable experiences in which she feels like a full and equal participant and that she's able to gauge that her, her partner is um, being respectful of her in the ways that she want and wants and making her feel comfortable in the ways that she wants. That same skill set she's going to need in order to make decisions about like what time she wanna go, might want to go home so she doesn't have to encounter that situation or if she's at a party and she finds that things are getting a little out of hand and she starts to get a, like that butterfly feeling in her stomach that something's not right that she should listen to that butterfly feeling in her stomach and because she can use it to protect herself and take care of herself so i think instincts are, are one of the um untapped beauties of talking about sexuality and they're, they um they can sort of translate into other realms of living too. And she could, she could also use that for going back to an example I said earlier, she can use her instincts to help decide what college she might want to go to or what, what subjects are of interest to her or even how to gauge platonic friendships. Is, is this friendship providing me with enough or do we need to have a conversation or is this person, you know, has this person repeatedly been um, disappointing as a friend and do I need to reevaluate this? That uses the same instincts as well. And that seems like a far less taboo talk, uh, talking point than like just slut shaming or, you know, making them only fearful of sexual assault and not really get having any attention paid to desire and the, the things that are luscious about sexuality. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, like I said, I, this whole topic is, you know, of all the content that I've done and all the shows and the interviews that I've done, this has been the one where I'm just, I, I actually have been the most like trapped in with the, with the what to do next kind of thing. And, you know, as you're sitting there, I'm watching and I'm observing, you know, my daughter, I observe, I feel like she um, is a, a, a strong woman, strong young woman. She's a girl. So, but at 14, a sense of identity that she is comfortable with. And, and what I always find, like the first thought that I have is that my feelings towards her when I see her are really not about how I feel about her, but they are instantly me. Like it, it mirrors back to me of like, I would never do that. I would never wear that. I would have, I never would have been that girl at 14. And it's having to detach from the, uh, the trigger, you know, of like, well, this isn't about you, Ami. This isn't you at 14 years old. This is, mm -hmm. this is your daughter at 14 years old. This is who she is. She definitely has been messaged different things in life because, and you know, like I said, I, um, I had mentioned like, 
I wonder if sometimes the, the bravado that she does show for herself and her confidence out there in this area is because she does have a mom that is also expressive and, and open and that there, these are actually good things. I mean, I guess it's part is like, am I, am I witnessing something that's positive for her as opposed to, as you mentioned, like, you know, is it a sign of, uh, you know, of her feeling like she's less than a person. And so she's objectifying herself for the sake of being able to mm-hmm. get. Or a combination um, of both. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> we'll figure that one out, I guess, as we, <laughs> as we go. Um, so a path forward for mothers and daughters that are working on this and having to deal with their own, you know, their own messages and scripts they got growing up as we all did that is in conflict with who we are. You know, what advice do you have on, on, on moving forward here? In the book, there are three lists of how we can look at our sexuality in a way that I think will help, like help us zoom out and see the larger picture. The first question, the first list of questions are, think ways that you sort of evaluate your mother's sexuality. And on that list would be things like, um, uh, do I hope my mom had more than one sexual partner? And why, why is that? Why would I want to know that or not want to know that? And what would it mean to her, to me if I found out questions sort of like that? There's another question, a list of questions that helps us evaluate ourselves as sexual beings. And that list would contain things like, um, uh, do I ever find myself when I'm making love feeling like I'm fixating on my flaws? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do I think I ended up that way? And then the third list would, is how to sort of evaluate what we hope for our girls' sexual life, sexual life and, and well-being and happiness. And on that list would be, um, uh, have, is there ever anything that I've chickened out on telling my daughter what is it and what made me chicken out? So when we look at like our fantasies of what our mom's sex lives might've been like our own experience with our own sex lives and wondering what, you know, sort of speculating what we would want to give to our daughters so that they would have the best chance of having a happy, fulfilling uh, life that they feel engaged in on all levels. Um, I think those are great ways to sort of help us uh, be more proactive in um, not being so anxious, not putting our own anxiety forward, but putting our, the best interest of our girl's happiness forward and sort of thinking about how we can be brave enough to get over those hurdles and say to them what we'd like to say to them and ask them what we'd like to ask them and give them access to our own experiences if we want to. Um, I think those are nice things to think about and, and that, that will create a, a, a bond and a sense of community of, of women. Yeah. I, what I like about that is that it's a forward thinking process. Instead of reflecting back on your own history of whatever it was, whatever the messages were that left you feeling with your own insecurities or shames or anything like that, you can almost say, like, I, you know, I get to choose to move forward from that point with, by, with my daughter in front of me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about this a lot in terms of like from a therapeutic process that you get to parent the way you wish you'd been parented. And so that sounds like a really great way to take a mom that, you know, like I said, even myself have had my own image, self-image issues and stuff that I, you know, I feel great at, you know, my age today, not having them anymore, but I, you know, I don't want my daughter to wait another 30 years to get to that point. So Mm -hmm. being able to, again, move her forward with all of that, I think that's really pretty powerful. Um, What are some of the other resources that people have that you can offer? Um, Book, I mean, is amazing, which is available everywhere, but let's talk about how people can find you to, uh, again, because this is a really... 
like I said, even for me, like I'm an outgoing person out there, but I, you know, and I'm not afraid of sex. I'm not afraid of talking about sex, but at the same time, it's, it's a hard thing to sit there and take away your own inner feelings about it with your daughter to do it in a way that, you know, sets them up for, you know, success and love and passion and health and, mm -hmm. and happiness and stuff like that. So how can people find you in other ways? Um, I have a website, JoyceMcFadden.com, which is, there's a little video there. Um, and there, uh, the blurbs on the book to give you a sense of what else is in the book is there. Um, I also have a Facebook page, Modern Mothering. I, I initially published the book with Palgrave Macmillan under the title, Your Daughter's Bedroom, Insights for Raising Confident Women, but I always hated the title and I hated the cover. <laughs> so that book might be available lots of places, but then I, I got the rights to the book back and I, I reissued it um, under the title, uh, Modern Mothering. So that's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Cool. Awesome. Joyce, this has been a pleasure. I am really honored again that you took the time to be able to do this with me. Like I said, there were so many people interested, not, not just myself, but in the topic because it is such a, such a delicate thing. And what I love is that for me, you know, again, I'm an advocate for mothers as well. And I'm glad you said this. This isn't about shaming moms. This isn't about no. pointing fingers at them or any, in, in bad ways. It is that we've gotten layers of an avalanche of information on top of us of what we could and couldn't do. And yet it is so important that we're willing to kind of pull our heads up and out of that cloud in order to be, um, to be better moving forward and to give, you know, our children, sons and daughters, both, you know, just a better, healthier outlook with this. And that, like you say in this book, moms are critical to that. And so, you know, you're a champion for mothers, which is why having you here today oh, has just been you. amazing. So thank you so much for this. My favorite thing in the world is being a mother, I have to say. So power to all the mothers out there and we should have each other's backs and just be comfortable like fumbling through it as best we can. Oh, awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquirconi.com and there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Perconi, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.